Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Robert Finger, who is Professor of Agricultural Economics and Policy at ETH Zurich. His research is focused at the interface of agricultural sciences and economics. Welcome, Robert. Hi, Jill. Good to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. Um, I want to start with one of your papers, papers from 2019, Economic Benefits from Plant Diversity in Intensively Managed Grasslands, uh, in which you say grasslands cover a major share of the world's agricultural area and are important for global food security. Plant species diversity in grasslands is known to increase and stabilize biomass yields. Uh, you say we economically evaluate these effects using a rich data set from 16 intensively managed grass, grassland sites across Europe. Uh, and so, so what do you find? Uh, where, where are we in terms of managing grasslands? Yeah, so first of all, I have to highlight that this work was uh, done together with uh, outstanding colleagues, uh, namely Andreas Lüscher, Nina Buchmann, and in particular, was led by our former PhD student, Sergei Schaub. Um, and, um, well, we have been interested in, in grasslands. You indicated it uh, because of their global, but also regional importance in Europe and in countries like Switzerland in particular. And we investigated uh, the possible role of, of um, species-rich uh, grasslands to um, produce, um, well, um, more, better, and more stable. And that's actually quite intriguing, the idea um, of using nature to buffer for specific shocks. And what we, uh, I mean, this is a concept that is well known in ecology, that, that more diverse grasslands are more shock resilient, so to say. So, for example, because uh, specific um, varieties, um, uh, um, like plant species in a grassland um, can use specific niches. Um, so, for example, one might be more uh, vulnerable to drought stress than another. So in, in, in the situation where a drought hit the grassland, 
the, the, the loss of yield in one of the plant species in that grassland is maybe compensated by um, more yields from another species in there. So this is a very nice idea to um, kind of stabilize possibly production. And what we did in that paper is to quantify the economic benefits arising from that. So we did um, different things. First of all, we put a price tag on the production. So we not only considered the biomass of grasslands produced, but actually um, looked at the quality uh, of the grasslands as well, so that we could transform that into a quality adjusted um, yield measure and then put a price tag on it. And secondly, we not only looked at the average production, but also on the um, on the variability of the production. So we uh, um, quantified how much the uh, diversity of plant species in the grassland is able to reduce the variability, the variance um, of the production. And we brought both together and assumed that uh, a risk averse farmer would be willing to pay a bit more to avoid uh, catastrophic events and high variability of his or her profits. And so this was the basis to 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 quantify these economic effects. Um, yeah, it, it's really interesting, Robert. You say here, uh, plant diversity not only increased milk production potential yields and thus revenues, but also reduced production risks. Uh, and so, so, so what's the mechanism for milk production yield increase? Is it that the livestock is healthier, uh, better fed? What What is the mechanism? So the mechanism that we investigated is, is really not necessarily at the level of the animal itself, but yeah. at the level of the fodder provided to the animal. So we here quantified um, the link between um, grassland yield in terms of um, quantity produced, um, but also then um, quality um, in terms of how much it actually um, uh, is, is kind of like uh, suitable for um, uh, animal production. So um, how much this, for example, can be transformed into a so-called milk production potential. Um, and the mechanism here is that uh, we find that, that more species rich uh, grasslands um, provide both um, higher yields that are not necessarily of lower quality um, and more stable yields. And in, in the setting that we looked at is in intensively managed grasslands in Europe. So yeah. here we have a range of, of one to four species um, in the grassland. So it's, it's still uh, a, a few species, but um, what we find is that adding a few more um, in these intensively managed grasslands can um, provide benefits to the farmer. Yeah, what, what I was thinking about, Robert, I wondered, can we really, really prove that um, it is really plant diversity that is driving the outcome? Or could there be something else? But the nice thing was uh, two of the co-authors on that paper, Nina Buchmann and Andreas Lüscher, are um, uh, ecologists, people working in grassland science. So they provided the, the data that we yeah. used here that comes from experiments. So this is the nice thing. We, we uh, had access to a rich database in which um, these grassland experiments were conducted. So where basically there was a clear setup uh, with different uh, uh, trials over uh, several years where 
ähm, die, die äh, Performance under different um, plant species diversity settings uh, were um, investigated. So, so that, that makes it very straightforward that we here can make these claims um, that under specific conditions, um, higher plant species diversity leads indeed to um, higher yields of similar quality, but with lower uh, volatility of profits involved. Yeah, so, so it's unambiguously good. Um, you have higher yields, higher revenue, lower volatility in production, lower risk of management. Uh, so if this is the case, um, how, how would one uh, take a grassland and improve its diversity? Um, is there anything in the data that might tell us how one could transform or enhance diversity to, to reach the stage? So maybe to, to clarify um, what we have not explicitly spelled out in that paper is that a higher diversity might also come with higher costs. So for example, we, we now have a study that, that we submitted where we look at the prices of seed mixtures. So one pathway to um, increase plant species diversity is, is simply to um, have a seed mixture in the very beginning that contains more than one species and then um, use multiple species. And if you look at the cost side, then you, you see also that on average, um, more diversity in the seeds um, is associated with higher costs. So there might be some, some balance, some trade-off there. Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, it's important to flag that in, in contrast to let's say, um, grassland management in many other countries um, in, in, in Switzerland and neighboring regions, it's not uncommon to have multiple species in the grassland. So this is something that is already used. But here we really elaborate also on the um, kind of extent of the effect. How much can you um, go on and expand the plant species diversity um, to um, gain from these benefits? Because this is... Um, in, also motivated by the fact that uh, risk management at the level of the field of the farm of the entire agriculture sector is, is simply yeah. gaining importance because of climate change. We experience um, more frequently climatic extreme events like droughts, heat waves, and that ultimately also leads to a higher variability of agricultural production. So then there are different pathways how farmers actually can cope with increasing risk exposure. And one of them might be at the level of the field um, to have more uh, rich uh, kind of uh, grasslands or also in other cropping systems to increase the diversity. And then there might be other complementing um, approaches like insurance and so on. Yeah. And so at the micro level, there is sort of a net present value question. You have to invest a little bit to increase the diversity but if there are benefits to the ecological benefits, uh, if the benefits to the environment, then uh, those additional benefits are garnered by the entire society. So do you see some sort of uh, government uh, subsidy type situation that might improve overall outcomes? So overall, in, indeed, um, as you say, there are um, two sides of that, that coin that, that might be promising. A, um, there could be private benefits to be um, exploited for the farmer. 
but there could be also um, public benefits because more diversity often also comes with, um, let's say, other ecosystem services. So maybe, for example, um, more diversity could mean more access for pollinators um, to, to, to actually feed on um, a specific field, but you may have also a more beautiful landscape that we all appreciate. So there are different ecosystem services provided by more diverse agricultural systems and also here very specifically by more diverse grasslands. So the role of the government um, could be um, well, different uh, or there could be different entry points for the government to, to support that. I guess the, the, the key is really also information and education in that sense. So um, I guess it really needs to be transported from uh, fundamental research to more applied things like we do it, where we try to um, transform that into, into, into monetary values. Um, and um, then really um, down to the farmer. And this is something that we did also in that project. Um, so uh, that type of information um, we obtained here really then ended up in, in, in uh, kind of like uh, agricultural journals and, and also in, in kind of like leaflets uh, provided to farmers. So this is something that is really important, the information side. But it could be also targeted support for specific farming systems in particular if you have to make uh, a bigger investments maybe than to, to uh, um, set up uh, a new production system that is more diverse than, than it might be really uh, um, kind of an invaluable approach for the government to support some kind of transition. Yeah, the, the private benefits you talk about, Robert, um, I would imagine it's not linear, right? So is there some sort of minimum required diversity type metric in the data that, you know, once you get to that diversity, then the margin effects beyond that is not, not high? Is there anything like that in the data? Indeed, um, this this is true. So this is this is not necessarily linear. Um, rather, I would say there is a saturating effect at one point, so that that more um, plant species might not necessarily um, all the time have the same kind of like um, marginal effect on productivity and risk reduction. So this is um, definitely the case, but. As indicated here in this paper, we really focused on an intensively managed grassland that usually has not a lot of um, plant species in it. So I said yeah. that that was in a range of four, but we also have other papers where we um, make use of um, experimental data that contains up to 60 species in a grassland. And this, of course, is... Um, probably not suitable for every farmer to, to, to have like 60 species in a grassland. Also, I indicated that earlier, that the cost might be very high for that to a, uh, establish this type of diversity in terms of um, cost for seed, for example, but also then maintaining it in terms of um, management. So here might be really a kind of like a sweet spot somewhere in the middle. Um, and I guess uh, one of the key conclusions for us is that even in intensively managed grassland systems where you want to push the production um, in order to um, have a good feed basis for your animals, um, adding some diversity might be good. Yeah. Yeah. It's a scientific and economic question. It is uh, nonlinear. It's somewhat complicated to internalize. 
So, so I wondered, you know, like, like you mentioned, Robert, one intervention is really providing the information to the farmer, right? Perhaps there is some sort of an optimization uh, type thing that an external agency could provide uh, for the farmers to execute. Do you think that is possible? I guess it's really important um, to be transparent on uh, costs and benefits uh, associated with specific options like more um, plant species rich grasslands. Um, so this is important, but also with the, um, well, let's say with the uncertainties associated with it. So this, this is something where I think the, the, in particular, the field trials, the experiments really run also at farms. Um, are super valuable to to provide information to farmers because um, an important um, issue is always also to 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 remove uncertainties associated with specific transi transitions. So whenever you uh, have to jump into a new uh, production system, um, you may know that there could be some benefits and and and. Uh, Nevertheless, you may hesitate to make that step uh, simply because it's too uncertain. And yeah. here, uh, providing information about experience from field trials, but also experience from other farmers, and in particular, then enabling the exchange between actors, between farmers, um, is very important. That that is key to to promote whatever um, new solution is is around. Yeah, and we're going to talk about insurance in, in other papers, but uh, there could also be a possibility of the government buying the downside to reduce the, the overall uncertainty faced by the farmer, perhaps. Yeah, so um, this is, I guess, an important, an important element. So um, crop insurance and also uh, insurance for grassland systems is something that is uh, of course, very relevant in all um, agriculture settings globally. Um, but in contrast to the US, where um, the agriculture insurance business is quite, let's say, well developed, um, in, in Europe there are some gaps. Uh, and, and for example, for grasslands, there's indeed, um, uh, there are some insurance solutions on the market, yeah. um, for example, to, to cover drought risk. But, not a lot. Um, so, and, and this is interesting because now, first of all, providing possibly a subsidized insurance for grasslands might um, involve some moral hazard for farmers. So the, the farmers may choose then to use a lower level of plant species diversity um, because the insurance um, is, is uh, providing the, the buffer for them huh? and, and the, the risk management. So. And here actually could be a nice uh, also combination of elements that you say, well, uh, you, you, we provide a specific insurance scheme for you, but only if specific requirements are taken at the level of the farm. And that could be that you indeed use a species rich grasslands, which is uh, reducing the uh, need for the insurance actually to pay out because your production is stabilized yeah. with that natural insurance. But on the top, if something is going wrong anyway, then there is a crop insurance in place that, that may support you. So I guess this is something that is also a really nice opportunity for systems where crop insurance, agriculture insurance in general is not very well developed that you can well, build it up 
better in the sense of that uh, multiple purposes are fulfilled um, to stabilize incomes of far farmers, to incentivize food production, but also to incentivize the production in a specific way that it's environmentally sustainable, for example. Yeah, so, so um, I want to talk about insurance a little bit. You have a recent paper, Insuring Crops from Space, the Potential for Satellite-Retrieved Soil Moisture to Reduce Farmers' Drought Risk Exposure. Um, you say crop producers face significant and increasing drought risks. Uh, you evaluate whether insurance is based on globally and freely available satellite-retrieved soil moisture data can reduce farms' financial drought risk exposure. Um, they, are, are these private insurance companies uh, that, that are providing these products or these are government products? So um, also here I have to uh, acknowledge that this was uh, uh, work done with, with different colleagues, uh, in particular Martin Hirschi, Tobias Dahlhaus, Yannick Bucheli, and in particular the paper uh, was led by Willemijn Fruche a former PhD student in my in my group. Um, and um, yeah, we look at the potential for um, satellite retrieved soil moisture to, to be the underlying for an index insurance scheme in, in um, crop production systems. And um, the, well, let's say the starting point is that um, we have many farms in Europe that face significant drought risk. So that means that there are um, frequently uh, severe yield losses because of drought. We observe that the probability of drought occurrence, but also the, the magnitude of occurrence, the, the um, intensity of that effect is increasing over time, also because of climate change. And um, we see that there is um, in the moment, there are very few options for farmers to really buy an insurance that, that covers their drought losses. Um, and <clears throat> this is due to the, the fact that the drought is a kind of like systemic risk. So it's very um, difficult to insure because well, in the moment the drought is hitting the continent, then um, it's not a very local event, but in contrast, regions, countries, or even the entire continent is hit. So that means this loss adjustment to go every single farm um, that uh, uh, often cannot be provided in, a, in an efficient way. So, so here you need kind of other mechanism to, to provide insurance. Um, and, um, and this type of index insurance, so that it's not based on the uh, well, actual performance on the farm, um, not going to the field and, and um, assessing the damage, but using an index like soil moisture to trigger the payout is very intriguing. And these products are um, around um, in, in the European market, but are not flying high in the sense of that they are um, massively used. So the, the, the basic motivation would be that this is a, a, like a private insurance company offering these solutions. Yeah. Um, and the goal of the paper was to show that basically satellite imagery can play a vital role in, in, in facilitating the uh, provision of better, um, more efficient, cheaper um, drought insurance solutions. And um, in particular, we make the point that, that, that freely available satellite imagery data 
can be sufficient to to provide um, a quite effective insurance solution. So in that sense, uh, it's it's making use of um, data that is provided um, in, in that example here by the European Space Agency um, for free uh, and can be quite, um, well, let's say, valuable for crop insurance purposes. Yeah, I wondered, Robert, from a from the farmer's perspective, if they believe in 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 case of a systemic shock, sort of countrywide or regionwide shock, the government will then step in and help them if they believe that, then they will have less of an incentive to buy private insurance products, right? Yeah, this is an an excellent an excellent point. Um, and indeed, that that happens. Um, so, um, yeah, for example, 2018 was a year where um, uh, many European countries were hit by severe by a severe drought um, that led to um, sharp yield losses. So, uh, for example, our case study in that paper is is focusing on on eastern Germany, which is a very important crop production region, but it's very drought prone, and and there. Uh, yield losses um, in crops like wheat that we focus on um, really have been up to 20-30%, so um, quite significant. And in that situation, the, the government stepped in and, and provided uh, support for farmers. And this is, of course, something that is going to be uh, a killer for the uh, development of a private insurance market. And um, as indicated, it's a bit kind of like a... Um, a ground where little insurance solutions for drought are established. And now it really needs to make a step forward. And I guess um, whenever the government is signaling that, that they will uh, provide uh, cover for whatever loss occurs um, to the left and right of the in insurance system, then of course it will never fly. But um, on the other hand, we also see that more and more uh, European countries are also interested in um, providing subsidies to the insurance system. And then, of course, at that point, if you say, well, I, I'm going to subsidize a specific insurance, then it needs to be really very clear and also very <clears throat> um, strict in, in, in its uh, um, execution that there are no um, kind of like payments, no catastrophic uh, payments provided to the farmers anymore if they are not insured. So. But I guess this is politically, it's a very difficult question. Um, but scientifically, of course, uh, it's it's either or. Yeah. Yeah. And I was also wondering, um, as technologies advance, um, artificial intelligence techniques uh, and other, other techniques, uh, if there are more sophisticated players entering the market, there could be... Um, a diverse set of products, right? Uh, they could even be sort of forward markets. If if a private company can understand the risk a lot better than the farmer, that the private company could forward buy the output. And, and if the farmer is really trying to reduce risk, it, it might, be, might be a good decision from a farmer's perspective. Do you think those types of things could happen? Absolutely, absolutely. So I, I think... Um, I mean, we are really moving ahead with um, the technological development in the agriculture sector and everything around it. And this is going to be uh, well, a, a true game changer in that setting. So um, 
I mean, now you tapped on different um, elements, but but obviously, if satellite imagery is powerful in in, in kind of like uh, flagging where there might be um, um, uh, a failure of specific crops in a specific region to a specific point in time, yeah. this information is obviously incorporated in in kind of uh, all the actors um, buying and selling um, in in that market. So, and this is. This is, of course, already used. Um, but um, as you say, there's such an advancement in terms of quality, um, quality in terms of temporal, but also spatial resolution of satellite imagery in terms of indicators that you can use to correlate with crop yields. And so while this is advancing, of course, the, the information is getting better and better. And the second element that you indicated is also that of, well, let's say, artificial intelligence and bringing all the data sources together that we have. It's not only satellite imagery, but it's also a lot of data on the ground that we actually have. Um, and there is more and more data gained also from, let's say, precision farming applications. So if, if farmers are using uh, sensors, uh, GPS, so you exactly know what they measure at what point in the field, what inputs they apply. So you have so much information that all can flow together um, to do many different things. Uh, first of all, forecasting the production, but second, and I guess that's key for the farmers to provide a basis for them to make better decisions. So give you a very specific example. If we do have a, a good forecast that a specific drought situation might be around because soil moisture is approaching uh, critical levels and, and uh, um, well, precipitation forecasts are um, uh, also contributing to that picture, then you might make different decisions on, um, I don't know, what, what to crop, what inputs to apply, what tillage to tillage uh, system to use. So there are many information that can be provided to the farmers yeah. to make better decisions. And this is something that is, that is already um, available um, to some extent for farmers in farm management information systems, but uh, I guess this is going to be more and more uh, viable, also incorporating elements of risk and risk management. And and yeah, I, I guess also that will imply that buying an insurance um, might be one of the elements that you can click on your dashboard um, mm. uh, and <laughs> when deciding what inputs to apply uh, and, and, and not, so in, in that sense, yeah, it's, it's going to be really um, a fascinating time ahead because um, to, to flag that um, the empirical question of agriculture economics and the interrelation with risk and risk management was usually one where we have a lack of data. So it was always difficult to find a good time series of multiple farms um, and, and really have good yield records and correlated with uh, specific weather outcomes, but ultimately we are really going in a phase where data is absolutely abundant and, and we have um, everything we want, maybe not in the structure that we are used to have it, but there's a lot of data um, to be uh, kind of used both in research, but also industry applications. Yeah, I, I wondered, Robert, do you see any sort of structural implications? What I'm thinking is that if you're heading in this direction, it is going to be very information heavy. It's going to be technology heavy. It becomes sort of a, a risk management, resource allocation, portfolio management problem. So in general, it becomes, um, there's going to be a lot more scale in the business. So 
would we move toward um you know farming done by a few entities in very large scale who you know who have access and knowledge and capabilities to manage it in this fashion absolutely so um i i guess this is uh, this is changing the uh, the role of actors and maybe even bringing completely new um uh, actors to the field of agriculture so um I guess one element is already that, that uh, agriculture machinery providers and input providers um, are developing um, and, and really establishing, establishing very well um, these kind of um, farm management information systems and, and, and uh, prescription tools that really give you um, yeah, a, a clear indication of what to do. Um, and and these are entering uh, different markets then so that that means um, if you if you are the machinery provider that actually also can um, can use the data that is uh, generated at the level of the farm you can tap on much more business fields than just selling machinery because now you have a lot of more information available but also um, companies totally outside of that field maybe um, key players in the future. For example, if uh, you have um, the necessity for um, kind of capacities and experience in big data analysis, this might be a totally different player than entering. So um, yeah. I guess we will we will see more and more new um, players entering. And for example, we talked about insurance and satellite imagery. Um, and in, in France, for example, there's an insurance scheme that is um, realized also via Airbus. So Airbus is providing here the expertise in satellite imagery. Um, and, and yeah, for example, Airbus is now a, an insurance player, so to say, mm -hmm. in the agriculture sector, which obviously is not their core business, but, um, but, but they have an expertise that is relevant in there. So these type of, of blended elements uh, will occur much more often. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. We'll, we'll take a quick break, Robert. When we come back, we'll talk about some of your other papers, especially those uh, related to pesticides. Good. Okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So we're back. Uh, Robert, you were talking about farming, uh, how farming might be changing uh, with uh, more data available, satellite-based data, technologies like artificial intelligence, better risk management, better portfolio management techniques, um, and how that ultimately lead to uh, different players perhaps entering the, the farming arena and how that might change. Uh, I want to go into a couple of other papers you have. One of them are pesticides risk decreasing, the relevance of pesticide indicator choice in empirical analysis. You say the reduction of adverse health and environmental effects from pesticide use is currently a top priority on the agricultural policy agenda. 
efficient pesticide, uh, pesticide policies must take into account farmers' application behavior, especially effects of pesticides uh, use on economic risk. How are previous results regarding the direction of risk effects of pesticides are ambiguous? Um, and so, so what are what, what are you finding? So this is sort of the status quo policies around pesticides. Uh, you're finding those policies are not necessarily unambiguously beneficial. Well, so I guess the starting point is that in particular in, in European agriculture systems, we are currently um, urgently trying to reduce pesticide risk for um, both human health and the environment. So there's a, a big debate about that. Um, all European countries have established so-called national action plans to reduce pesticide uh, risks. Um, and thus there is a strong political will and, and commitment to reduce pesticide risk. And also, on the other hand, there is um, quite some societal debate about that. So that means there's also an opportunity uh, for, um, let's say, the industry to sell products that um, are characterized by a lower pesticide use and thus lower risk for the environment and human health. So yeah. what I'm trying to say, this is a, quite a, a movement um, to uh, towards lower pesticide use or even pesticide-free um, production systems wherever this is possible. And now comes the point, I mean, um, ultimately you can talk about many alternative um, kind of cropping system technologies, uh, but farmers have to make use of it. And if they don't use it, then, well, um, there's little gain of having um, alternative solutions around. And in this, this particular paper, we, we uh, wanted to, to address a key element, namely farmers are not only applying pesticides to avoid crop losses and with that avoid on average the reduction of profits but it's also kind of like an insurance like mechanism right you can um, by applying pesticides you may also simply reduce the probability to to fall below critical thresholds in terms of your production levels and your profits yeah. and um even though it's very straightforward to say that, uh, let's say, a more risk-averse farmer would apply more pesticides, it's not so clear um, from the literature because that was ambiguous in, in terms of that very mixed results were actually shown. And here in that paper, we made use of uh, an, an kind of like a data set for Swiss wheat production where we really could zoom in details, details of pesticide use um, over several hundred farms and many years. And um, we could zoom in not only the, let's say, the expenditures on pesticide and the quantity of pesticides that they used, but also the toxicity. And what we find is, is that um, uh, um, that Pesticides um, in terms of quantity um, are um, well risk increasing in our example, but in terms of toxicity are risk decreasing. So to frame it differently, a farmer that is more risk averse is using fewer pesticides 
This is what we see in the data, but is using more toxic products. So, and this is this is a kind of the switch um, that is that is really important that um, there is a switch in products and farmers that are more concerned about risks may use products that are more toxic, but in that way may also be more effective um, in controlling specific pests. Um, but ultimately, the quantity of their production is reducing. And this is, this is a, I guess, an important element also to consider that um, well, quantity of pesticides is not at all a very good indicator for their possible environmental and human health effects. So um, this, this is a key element here. Um, we have to really see what measure of pesticides we are focusing on. So there is quantity, there is toxicity, and there is cost also, I would imagine, right? So all, all those three components sort of play into the decision-making process. Yeah, that's, that's true. And in particular, we are um, possibly, even if the farmer is not necessarily aware about the toxicity differences, but this is something to really have in mind that, um, well, if we do see that specific farmers, because of their um, high risk aversion, for example, are um, making use of, of very toxic products, then of course, this is not necessarily an intended outcome um, because this might increase um, substantially the risk for um, the environment and human health. So this also offers some policy entry points. So could you provide these farmers with um, other means to reduce their exposure to risk and kind of like with that, take away some of the uh, incentives to switch to very toxic pesticides? Could there be um, other technologies provided to farmers that allow them to, to make um, best management decisions in a, in a more sustainable way to, to avoid that? So th this is, these are the type of, of implications that we want to derive from studies yeah. like that. Are more toxic uh, products uh, less costly, Robert, on a per unit basis? I guess that depends um, um, on a, it, it should be, uh, it should be because, um, yeah, um, that, that's a good question whether to, to make that so, but I would assume that, that more effective products at least um, that might be also more toxic um, yeah. um, are more expensive per unit basis, but, but it's not so clear cut, but it's there are some countries in Europe that try to make this difference to break the difference a bit up. Uh, so, for example, in Denmark, there is a, a tax on pesticides that is um, the, the level of the tax is very product specific, and this is based on the toxicity of the product. So, if a product is, is highly toxic and highly risky uh, for um, human health and the environment, then the price of that pesticide product is substantially higher than, uh, for example, for a product that is um, well, not risky at all for human beings and the environment. So um, here you can actually steer with the price um, of pesticides, also the application behavior of farms. Yeah. The I guess, um, yeah, so, so you can sort of tax it in some way, tax toxicity, so they fully sort of internalize the cost of toxicity. And, and perhaps you get uh, good behavior. I was wondering, 
do the farmers face some sort of a switching cost issues? So they've been using X and that is uh, highly toxic uh, to, for them to switch to Y that is not that toxic. Um, they incur a sort of a, an investment to do that or that's not the case? Well, it's really very specific to the to the to the type of crop, to the type of pest, whether this is a wheat, an insect, a fungi pressure that, that we talk about. So um, um, I guess there are some opportunities where you can switch uh, from, from more to less toxic products. Um, for example, if you can make use of, of products that are also used in organic agriculture. So these are usually, um, they are not necessarily uh, um, um, always um, without any impact for human health and the environment, like for example, copper is something that is frequently used, but it's not, um, well, let's say, not also not a sustainable product. Um, but but overall, there are potentials to kind of like substitute to to better um, yeah. products. But very often, <laughs> to make the big steps, you may really need um, like a bigger change, a bigger change, for example, in terms of technology. Um, so one specific example is this, um, we talked about it um, earlier, precision farming application where you basically use sensors to um, spot in a field where specific inputs are needed and where not. So for example, to spot where you need to apply fertilizer or you need to apply pesticides. If you have a situation that is um, uh, kind of like enabling you to make really targeted decisions in the field, you can spare a lot of the pesticides to be used. Huh? And um, this can be uh, like a very effective way in reducing pesticide exposure also to, to well, humans and the environment. But this comes with, uh, of course, with, with high costs. Um, so here this transition, the switch will be costly. And also this, of course, is again another policy entry point how to enable farmers to make these technology choices that might be more um, uh, kind of like socially um, uh, desirable, um, but not necessarily this always has to be kind of like hardware that you apply and buy a new machinery, but it also can be different cropping systems. For example, if you have crop rotations that are bigger in terms of having more diversity over time and space, this is also something that might reduce the pest pressure and with that also reduce the, the cost for um, uh, the, the need for pesticide application. But this might come with some opportunity costs so that you not always have the highest profitable crop in every year, but you have to kind of like um, have a rotation um, that enables, um, well, um, that, that requires that you also take uh, some crops that may not be perfectly profitable, but um, makes sense in the long run because it actually uh, reduces pest pressure, among others. Yeah, that, that's, I was wondering. So from a societal perspective, if farmers are looking at pesticides, sort of an insurance policy against a reduction in yield, um, there's sort of a policy societal question, which is uh, there is a cost to pesticides. There is health healthcare costs, there's environmental costs. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if, if society can guarantee, uh, you know, some sort of a downside protection for the farmer, 
we it's possible that we can substantially reduce the use of pesticides, right? Maybe it is really an insurance from a farmer's perspective. Yeah, so um, definitely um, I, I can just second what you said in terms of societal costs. So um, we have multiple entry points here. One is, is human health, um, where it's maybe not straightforward to have a, a causal relationship between um, the magnitude of pesticide use and the, the health outcomes. But we do know that um, pesticide use um, has negative effects on human health. So there are health costs, but there are also other costs. Like, um, for example, um, if, if water bodies are polluted, you might uh, have to kind of like treat water to actually use it um, as drinking water. So there are also direct costs really um, end up in, in the pockets of us as consumers. Um, but also if you think about, for example, loss of biodiversity because of pesticide use, this of course may also be very costly to, with other measures to actually um, build up biodiversity again to the level that is intended or kind of, I guess it's rather reducing the the speed of uh, biodiversity reduction. So there, this is this is in the end quite costly, and that actually calls for action by the government in terms of um, a um, having a clear goal in reducing these risks. That means often also, um, yeah, switching to less toxic products, switching to alternatives. I said that crop rotations, technology. There might be different um, elements to be used and and exploited further. Um, and, and then is the question how to achieve that. I mean, having a goal is good, but then ultimately farmers have to be um, moved um, to new situations. And then we talked about taxes, which is one element, but probably not the only one. Taxes might be used to raise money that also is used as subsidy for specific actions that farmers are doing. For example, new technology or a specific farming system that is less profitable, but uh, less uh, reliant on pesticides. Um, and also that element of, of uh, giving them some kind of insurance-like mechanisms that they don't um, uh, realize very low yield events because they reduce their pesticide use. This might be also a very interesting component. Um, it's very difficult to achieve in practice because, um, well, these insurance solutions might come with two um, entry points. One is at the so-called intensive margin. So you do have a change in the pesticide use intensity in a specific crop. Um, let's say you have uh, uh, a vineyard and then there's an insurance provided to you that uh, in the case you don't spray specific things, then um, you have a yield uh, uh, loss, then this is covered. Um, and there might be a positive effect of such an insurance to really reduce pesticide use. But then you also have an extensive margin effect, and that is the spillover to land use. Um, so providing such an insurance scheme may give farmers the incentive to expand their vineyard area. Um, and, and overall, um, this might actually backfire, this effect, because then you have um, <clears throat> Uh, possibly a larger uh, pesticide use in the end because they may uh, switch um, low intensity crops to uh, like 
uh, areas to high intensity crops and with that even there is a reduction per unit basis um, in a particular crop um, if the unit is expanded um, then you might have more pesticide use in the end so um, you, you see there's a kind of like a, a complex mechanism yeah. that might be in place uh, if, if providing an insurance but um, there are very good examples um, ongoing. So with uh, a colleague in, in Denmark, we are now looking at the scheme that they uh, have as a pilot there where they um, allow farmers to well, basically um, uh, skip some applications um, within the season, for example, for growth regulators. And in that situation, they can actually ask for an insurance. And this is um, so what I'm trying to say, there are some uh, pilots on the way where it's been yeah. very targeted um, to specific pesticides, to specific problems. Um, so this, this, this can be helpful. But, but overall, um, I think important in that, that picture of um, demanding reductions in pesticide use also is requiring that, that somebody and, and here the government can play a vital role is providing information and incentives for farmers to use alternatives. I mean, otherwise, uh, just requesting um, reductions on one side, but not offering the like the pathways how to actually achieve this. This is um, well, meaningless. Then, yeah. do you do you see, Robert? There is a need for some sort of a EU-wide uh, policy um, organization. Um, you know, clearly what a country does uh, has below effects to the entire continent, if not the entire world. And so country-specific policies are going to be suboptimum. So do, uh, is there an EU-wide policy uh, organization? Yes. So um, the, the, the European Union actually has uh, what is called a so-called common agriculture policy. Yeah. So they have a kind of like overarching agriculture policy. And this is, um, well, this is the framework um, in which everybody, every country is operating in. Switzerland is not part of the European Union, but also has an um, agriculture policy that, that, uh, um, that, that highlights specific elements um, and what the European agriculture policies actually share is a clear focus um, not only on producing food, but also being sustainable. So in that sense, it's it's a clear target in these policies. And in the common agriculture policy of the European Union, um, recently, um, or at the level of the European Union recently, there was also um, uh, an, a new vision, so to say, was formulated and, and uh, among or under the umbrella of the green um, deal, so to say, um, there's a farm to fork plan uh, formulated that really articulates particular environmental goals of farming systems to be reached in the next years. For example, cutting down greenhouse gas emissions by 50%, um, uh, increasing the share of organic farming to 25% and also reducing uh, the risks of uh, pesticide use by 50% in the next um, years till 2030. So in that sense, there is a bigger vision shared by um, many countries and, and the European Union and also many countries that are not in the European Union. And 
and indeed this this also calls for some coordination um, in in terms of what instruments to be used but of course i mean countries and farming systems in europe are very diverse and then um, one policy <laughs> may be well suited to some systems uh, but not to others and in particular to give you the examples you have a clear gradient between um, let's say arable production with with cereals where it might be easier to reduce the pesticide use and substitute for example towards mechanical strategies um, to control wheat but then you also have intensive uh, um, high value um, production of fruits of wine and in, in some regions of europe this is of course super relevant and there the intensity of pesticide use is usually um, much higher so then it's difficult to find the one policy that suits all farmers yeah so as in conclusion robert i know that you have done a lot of work in this area continue to do so uh, if you look forward five five years um where, where do you think uh, two things one is from a from a structural perspective where do you think uh, farming will be let's say five years into the future um in terms of size in terms of you know how it's how it's really managed uh, let's say another is uh, is well, is about policy so where do you think we will end up i think there is increasing pressure from an environmental perspective um to uh, to to get uh, to get better um uh, in farming so so do you have some speculations as to where you're likely to end up 5 years from now <laughs> very good question um well i mean 5 years ahead the farm structure won't be totally different than it is now so yeah. um there is some structural change in european agriculture but again this is very country specific um but this is not taking place at the pace where there's a complete change of the farming system within 5 years so take the example of switzerland um maybe there's um the the, the loss of of farms is is at about 1% uh, per year so this is not um massively then in terms also of like how farm size for example is changing but we do observe in 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 many european um agricultural systems uh we do see quite some transition for example because of the use uh of of digital technologies um that um that can massively change how farms operate um and so there's quite some um change in the terms of technologies used but also in terms of i indicated that the the goal formulated by the european union to increase the share of organic farms to 25% um, which is currently i guess only the case in in maybe one or two countries like austria where this is really reached but for many other countries that would mean like a massive increase of uh, organic farms so this might be one uh, element as well where this is heading um, um because it's desired by policy and if there's also a market where farmers actually can um uh, gain from benefit from higher prices then then of course that might be a viable area for farms to develop um and regarding policies i mean um in in europe at large i guess we see um some developments the first one is that you indicated that more environmental 
sustainability, so um, decreasing the footprints to the agriculture sector, both um, in Europe, but also beyond, because European agriculture is a lot relying also on imports, for example, because of fodder imports for the animal production. So I guess this is something where there is a clear need and articulated um, demand to reduce that footprint environmentally, but also social um, sustainability will gain importance. So uh, uh, there are many food value chains that are not necessarily uh, sustainable also from a social point of view. Again, um, questions about like imported food, but also food production and, and processing in Europe. And then um, this is the one thing, more sustainability. And the second thing is that we see increasingly uh, a policy shift that goes from agriculture in its like a core uh, and narrow sense and the level of the farm to something bigger. So yeah. what is talked about uh, a lot and, and we see that reflected in policy uh, um, developments is that we go from an agriculture policy to a food policy. Yeah. So understanding that actually it's not the farm and the farmer that actually are um, uh, kind of, so to say, the, the only entry point for policies to improve the outcomes of um, the, the food system, but there are multiple uh, entry points. And in particular, I mean, it's it's very important to highlight it's it's our food system that that causes uh, environmental damages. That, that means that there are also other entry points, whether these are in, in reducing uh, food losses, food waste, or in kind of like um, having a more sustainable mechanism to trade, um, having more kind of like sustainable ways of, of uh, um, producing and marketing food. So this is, this is something that is, is fascinating to see that we move into uh, like a bigger picture mm. and, and we'll move away from the level of the farm to actually steer what agriculture is doing, but really have a more holistic approach towards um, what is then called a common food policy that Europe might be um, heading to in the next years. Yeah, and it's, uh, I would imagine it's intricately connected with healthcare as well. So we look at the entire value chain. Um, food, is, food has a significant effect on health. And so, so from a policy perspective, uh, as you say, we can't really look bottom up. Um, you really have to look at the entire system. Yes, and this is this is I mean this is really changing also the the way how you um, maybe look at specific interventions in that sector. So you have multiple outcomes, um, and and human health is one not only from a pollution point of view, but also from a point of view how you consume. And obviously, um, providing um, kind of uh, affordable, healthy diets um, and enabling kind of like a radical shift in the diets that might also be needed. Um, to to have better health outcomes, this is something that you might steer. And also, um, I mean, there are often some kind of contradictions in specific policies. So sometimes you uh, heavily support sugar production, but in the end, uh, you you tax uh, sugar at the level of the consumer. So um, and you see, there are some some elements that really might be um, well not perfectly coherent in the moment and there's a lot of uh, kind of low-hanging fruit stuff where you can actually um, I guess easily create better outcomes um, yeah 
so I, I see that as a big opportunity um, and, and also as a big opportunity to not uh, transfer all the uh, societal demands that we have uh, to the level of the single farmer, but there are also multiple other entry points that can um, contribute to better and more sustainable food systems. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Robert. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Yes, thank you very much, Jill. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah. Thank you. Cool. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.